This is the Savior's love for you. I want you to enjoy that love as you partake in this communion today. I want you to come and sit at the feet of your Redeemer and say, Thank you, Lord, for becoming my kinsman Redeemer. Surely he has been kind to you. Surely he has given you tokens of his love. Surely he has given you this contract of saviorhood and salvation. Rejoice as his bride. Thank you for joining with us here on Let the Bible Speak Today. Ruth's marriage to Boaz is our message. We began this yesterday. We hope to complete this today. I trust you'll stay tuned with us right through the program as we deal with this amazing romance. But it is also a picture of redemption, the love of God for sinners, and the legal contract that God entered into in giving His Son to be our Redeemer, accepting the payment that Jesus made at the cross, whereby we are saved completely, legally, and, praise God, eternally. This is a marriage till death us do part. And I trust that the Lord will minister to each and every one of us today from his holy and precious word. Sketches from church history. We'll be continuing with our extracts on John Calvin in the city of Geneva. We begin firstly with this hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And again, this is in keeping with the work of our Redeemer. If you want to be made pure, the Lord Jesus is the man you need. If you want to be delivered from the sin and the filth of this world, you need the Lord Jesus to be your Savior. And the only way that you'll ever be clothed in perfect righteousness is to receive that perfect life of Christ to your account, to be united to Him and then you will be perfectly provided for. Yes, he is pure in heart. And our Lord came to make his bride pure and clean, and one day present his church spotless before the Father. And this becomes our hope, 
Our Lord is the right man. He is the one that sinners need. He's the one that you need. Now, let me ask you, are you mortgaged? Are you in debt? Have you sinned against a holy God? Do you realize that you can never buy your way out? That you are impoverished and in misery for all eternity without such a Redeemer? Then come today and realize the right man for you. He's the man from heaven. He's the man of Calvary. He's the man of sorrows who took your sin in his own body and suffered in your place. So he's the right man. Now, as we, and this is why I read chapter 4, because he's also the legal man for Ruth. And I realize the wording is a little bit clumsy here, but it, it gets to the point. And I considered other terms, but it doesn't get to the point. There were legal issues involved in becoming the kinsman redeemer. And if you uh, look at chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll be introduced to this anonymous kinsman. Because on the night that uh, Ruth said to Boaz, and she invited him to take the role of a kinsman for her, he said, but there's another kinsman. There's someone nearer, first in line. And we have to deal with this in a legal, proper, open public manner. And so it appears the next day that as he was in the city at the gate, he called to this other kinsman. Now he's anonymous. His name is not given. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz calls out and he says to him, Ho, such a one! And he challenges him now about this first right to be the kinsman redeemer of Elimelech's household. He also, in verse 2, calls for the elders of the city. And he insists on ten men, and he says, I want you to sit down. And one commentator uh, shows that, that in a biblical times, an oriental culture, this was easy to do. Not like our modern day, with everybody listening to their phones and running all kinds of haste. In those times, it was leisurely. People were willing to sit and talk and, and, and enter into such a contract. And so these ten witnesses were found. They were elders, men of standing in the town. Boaz did not want this to be done in the dark. He didn't want this to be hidden. He wanted this to be a contract that would end, that would stand the test of time. And so he called these ten men. And then in verse 4, he challenged this anonymous redeemer, to play the part of a kinsman. If you're going to be the kinsman, then do it. If not, I will be the kinsman. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 4, this anonymous kinsman's response. He said, and I just wonder how Boaz felt about this. It seems a whole lot of things were just on the edge, on the balance, because this anonymous kinsman said, I will redeem it. Well, here now, Ruth's future may be entwined in a totally different man's life, and not Boaz at all. Nevertheless, this challenge had to be made, and this anonymous kinsman had to be faced. Now, I wonder why he is not named. We have all the names of everyone else in this whole story. Why is this other kinsman not named? 
because this kinsman can take on a number of faces. He could be Adam because the law demands that sons of Adam bear the guilt of Adam. Adam is the Adam the first, the first Adam brought legal bondage to every son, every soul in this world. And because you are a son of Adam, the law speaks against you. So it could be Adam, could be the law. It could be lust and pleasure. It could be greed. It could, of course, be Satan. Perhaps there is room here that Satan is the one that claims your soul and may have first right because you have sinned. And Satan lays the charge, you can't be in heaven. God cannot be righteous and bring you to heaven. It will undo the very moral integrity of a holy God to bring a sinful son of Adam into glory. Now note this, this other kinsman. He wanted the estate of the field, but he didn't want Ruth. And that became the issue here, because he said, uh, Boaz said, verse 5, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabites, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right. And so it seems that this anonymous redeemer, he had limited resources, maybe already had a wife and family. He couldn't take on anything more. He would mar his name or testimony. He would bring into question his standing. This would harm him because of his limited resources. And therefore, the great opportunity for Boaz opens up. And he throws now the statement, you refuse, I will act. And how does he do this? Well, you'll notice that he eliminates the other kinsman in a very public fashion. And he does it by what in those days was a legal contract. He took his shoe he gave it to the kinsman that was in first place in the presence of these witnesses. And you'll notice in verse 9, Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. He's going to become the kinsman to own the property. He'll cancel the mortgage. And then, let's not leave out verse 10. This is the romance of the whole thing. Moreover, and I didn't really look at the Hebrew in the, in the moreover, but you'll notice that he, this, this, this is the precious part to his heart. This is the thrilling part to his own heart. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabites, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. This is the beauty of it. And so he becomes the legal man for Ruth. And in an open, 
fashion publicly in the city with witnesses to concur in this contract, with this manner of the times using the custom of handing over his shoe and the other man taking that shoe, thereby in a legal fashion, this man, Boaz, becomes the kinsman redeemer of property and of Ruth to be his wife. It becomes uncontestable from here on. And this is the Savior that we need. And when our Lord Jesus entered into the contract of redemption to purchase us out of sin, He ensured that every other suitor, every other claim upon your soul would be canceled and dealt with and put away. And I rejoice in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so if you have Christ today as your Redeemer, as your kinsman Redeemer, the one that is the wealthy Redeemer from heaven, who is of your very bone and your flesh, and you're trusting in Him, He has canceled the law. Romans 8, 2 goes on to say, For the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. What a gospel. What a Savior. We have the right man today as our Lord and our Redeemer. And he steps in, and he does so in such a manner that he cancels all debt. And of course, it was a contract of grace between the Father and the Son. It was displayed at Calvary. And he really came in human form. And he really paid the atoning price that the law can never again accuse you, to damn you, to rob you of the right to eternal life. And of course, he silences every accusation. What a Savior we have. All oh, that we might appreciate all that he is to us. I think that sometimes we rush into communion and our worship of our Lord, and we have not even begun to consider all that he is to us and all that he has done for us. But let us not forget the third part of this. Boaz was the loving man for Ruth. From the very first introduction in this story, when Ruth entered the field of Boaz, there was an immediate attraction. And it seems that the mind and heart of Boaz was upon this young maiden, and he had care for her. He considered her as a stranger from Moab in the land of Israel. He commended her for her faithfulness to her mother-in-law, for carrying the burden of being out in the field in the heat of the day. He offered sustenance and food to her of his own table. And again, he told the reapers to protect her, watch over her, provide handfuls in purpose for her. And those favors grew into promises and those promises grew into tokens of his love for Ruth. One of the big tokens you'll see in Ruth at chapter 3 
verse 17. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he to me. For he said to me, Go not out empty unto thy mother-in-law. Now, they had discussed the whole arrangement that he would become. He would do all in his powers to become the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Ruth waited for that to happen. And he gave her, he took her veil, filled it with six measures of barley. And when she arrived home, Naomi knew, oh, Naomi knew that there was now the wheels in motion of this romance, this attraction between Boaz and Ruth. And the strongest, the strongest words you will find in verse 18, these are the words of Naomi. Oh, the mother-in-law. And mothers can see that sparkle of love in the eyes of their children. And of course, Naomi, well, she had a whole lot to promote this. And you know, mothers do that. Mothers are inclined to try and, you know, steer things a little bit, guide things along the way that, you know, girl meets boy in the right place at the right time. Well, here's Naomi in verse 18, and she says, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not rest until he hath finished the thing this day. A man will not rest. And we know the story. We read this chapter 4. He went into the street. He called the elders. He challenged the kinsman. He entered into the contract. He purchased the property. He took her legally to be her wife. He did not rest until the matter was completed. And this is all a picture of our Redeemer and our Savior, who in the love that he has for us, he will not rest. He left heaven's glory. He went to the cross. And he did not rest just to be a mere figure Savior. He endured the cross. He bore the shame. He paid the price. And of course, he rose from the tomb, a mighty conquering Savior, that he might claim his people. And if you are saved today, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus today, let me tell you, he will not rest until he brings you home to glory. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am thankful today that I have a restless Savior in this sense. Where is he now? He's no longer on the cross nor in the tomb. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is actively praying, supplicating for his church. My names are in the palms of his hands, and he pleads my name before the Father. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He is the right man. 
And we come to remember him today in his love for us, in his immovable, unflinching purpose to redeem, to have us as his bride, and to be with him for all eternity. Surely the gospel is the greatest love story of all time. And what we have in Ruth and Boaz is just a little shadow of the great picture of Calvary redemption, Christ purchasing our soul. This is the Savior's love for you. I want you to enjoy that love as you partake in this communion today. I want you to come and sit at the feet of your Redeemer and say, thank you, Lord, for becoming my kinsman Redeemer. Surely he has been kind to you. Surely he has given you tokens of his love. Surely he has given you this contract of saviorhood and salvation. Rejoice as his bride. Oh, believer, rejoice. You may have a thousand other problems in your life, but rejoice in the Lord's wonderful love toward you. Let us just be his bride today. Let the Lord love us. You know, sometimes Christians get into such a state that no matter what are the tokens and the promises and the truths, we sort of hold back. Don't hold back with the Lord. He loves you. He wants to express his love to you. He wants you to enjoy his love. This table is not a barrier to the bride of Christ. This table is the trysting place. It is the place of communion, entering into the sweet, beloved fellowship of the Savior. May the Lord draw you and bless you today. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Gallagher, and we're looking at Sketches of Church History by S.M. Houghton. Already uh, this week, we have looked at John Calvin in Geneva, but there came a crisis where Calvin had to leave for a period of time and then return with something of the stamp of God upon him. Here's how it is recorded in this Sketches from Church History. Leaving Geneva, Calvin returned to Strasbourg, where he became a pastor to a French refugee congregation, and did his utmost to organize the church in accordance with the teachings of the New Testament. He compiled a songbook, which included French metrical translations made by Clement Marot and some of his own translation. This began to popularize psalm singing throughout Reformed churches. Then, too, he was engaged in writing commentaries on Scripture and in contending for the faith at various conferences. He also decided to marry, the lady of his choice being a widow, Idelette de Bure. Later, a son, Jacques, was born to them, and he lived only a few days. Calvin lived for about three years at Strasbourg, during which time the Roman Catholic Church tried to recover control of Geneva. But in the providence of God, some of Calvin's friends succeeded in obtaining control of the Geneva City Council, and it was decided to invite Calvin to return. He was reluctant to do so, 
but because his pride had been hurt by his former banishment from the city, but because he doubted whether he was the right man for the work which the situation demanded. Eventually, in 1541, he consented to return. He was received with great joy and set about the task of bringing the civil and religious life of the city under the discipline of God's word. The instruction of youth was taken up with great energy. At first he preached twice on Sundays and three times during the rest of the week. But from 1549 he preached twice on Sundays and every day in alternate weeks. Calvin's return to Geneva and settlement there took place in September 1541. It was an event of great importance in the story of the Reformation, for he donned, as it were, the mantle that Luther was soon to lay down, and the influence of his work and his writings quickly spread to all parts of Western Europe. It has been well said that to omit Calvin from the history of Western civilization is to read history with one eye shut. As the story of the Reformation unfolds further, the truth of this statement will become increasingly clear. By the middle of the 16th century, John Calvin was the dominant figure of the Protestant Reformation. After Luther's death in 1546, all who had become convinced of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church looked to Calvin for guidance and instruction. The geographical position of Geneva and the growth of the Reform movement in most parts of Europe caused the city and its leader to be regarded as a rallying point. This was especially the case with those who fled from persecution. Geneva became a haven of refuge to Protestants whose lives were endangered. Its gates were ever open to provide fugitives with security. One such person was John Knox of Scotland. Young men often went to Geneva to be prepared for the work of the ministry of the gospel in Central and Western Europe. It was in Geneva that several of the English and Scottish refugees set about the task of preparing a new translation of the whole Bible into English. The first edition was printed in 1560, and it soon became the favorite version of Protestants in England and Scotland. Of course, Calvin was not directly involved in its production, but as he had very great influence upon those responsible for it, in an indirect way, he and his teachings were related to it, and especially perhaps to the marginal notes which belonged to it. It was a, of potent influence in promoting the growth of Puritanism in England, even when the famed authorized version of the Bible appeared in 1611, another 30 years passed, before the Geneva Bible ceased to be printed. And we end there our sketches from Church History by S.M. Houghton. This book is available through Let the Bible Speak for those who phone, write, email, or go through our website. And all these announcements are coming up. We do thank you for your time and interest, and trust the Lord has blessed you today as we've endeavored to let the Bible speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Call me, please, at 604-897-2040. For all the details of our broadcasts across Canada, go to ltbs.ca.
This broadcast comes to you today from the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, located at 18790 58th Avenue, Surrey, at the corner of 188th Street and 58th Avenue. Our website is cloverdalefpc.ca, and there you can find gospel articles, links to our sermons, a gospel booklet called A New Beginning, and a link to watch our services online. You're warmly invited to attend any of our Sunday services at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. to meet with us as we worship God and to hear the preaching of His precious Word. We also meet for Bible study and prayer every Wednesday evening at 7.30 p.m. Our Sunday School for Children and Adult Bible Class meet every Lord's Day at 9.30 a.m. from September to June. You can contact us at 604-567-1091. Alternatively, you can email me at pastor.cloverdalefpc at gmail.com. Again, for all this information, please visit our website at cloverdalefpc.ca. Our burden is that you will hear and understand the gospel that will bring you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. This is Pastor Andrew Fitton. Thank you for listening today. And be sure to listen Monday to Friday at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our one-hour church service as we worship the Lord through the ministry of His Word.